0: I'm afraid some of you might have opened up the Bibles on the wrong side because there's some sneaky little guy in our youth group who uh, finds joy in taking out the Bibles and changing the covers around. So that, that's the inside joke there. Um, okay. What was that? Yes. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you give us the eyes to see what greatness is, what greatness truly looks like. Amen. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. Who's famous for saying these words? Muhammad Ali. Just realised I don't have a remote. There we are. Thank you. Muhammad Ali. Uh, He said this before, the biggest fight in his career when he was taking on Sonny Liston. Uh, He wrote a biography that I didn't realise he wrote. And it's entitled this, an autobiography. The greatest, my own story. <laughs> True story. Um, another story about Muhammad Ali. At the peak of his career, he was flying interstate to take on uh, another um, boxer to, uh, to defend his world heavyweight title. When the captain announced on the aeroplane, approaching severe turbulence, would passengers and crew fasten seatbelts immediately? Now, normally when the turbulence signs go on, it's severe enough. If the captain announced severe turbulence, I certainly would freak out. I hate turbulence. The the crew hurried up and down the aisles, making sure everyone was safe and they had their uh, belts strapped on. And then one flight attendant noticed Muhammad Ali toward the front of the aeroplane with his seatbelt obviously open on his lap undone. "'Excuse me, sir, would you please fasten your seatbelt?' she asked. The captains advised that this could be quite rough." Ali looked at her and calmly said, ''Supermen don't need no seatbelts.'' <laughs> Quick as a flash, she replied, ''Supermen don't need no plane.'' <laughs> I would have loved to have seen his face. I'm sure he'd smile. Ali loved wit. To be good or even great at what we do, I think it's a God-given desire that we all have, but the question is, how do we become great? How do we become great? That's the question we're thinking about this evening. For a while at high school, my best friend and I were competing. Um, We had a massive rivalry going. Who was better at sport? Who was better at English? Who was better at maths? To be great, is it to be better than other people? Time magazine, they each year uh, release the Time 100. They're a list of the most influential people, the 100 most influential people that year. They're the cream of the crop. Is that what it is to be great, to have the most influence? What is it to be great? Is it to have thousands of Instagram followers? Is it to be successful in life? Is it to um, have a career that's going in one direction and that's up, to have a bank statement that's going up? Is that what it is to become great? How do we become great? So as Lily said, we're making our way through Luke's Gospel as we approach Easter this year. And you might remember last week, Jesus did something revolutionary. Now you'd expect any Jewish leader to um, celebrate the Passover with his disciples. That's what they did. They they reclined around a table and celebrated the Passover. But th- that wasn't special. What Jesus did next was special. The Passover always pointed back to the time God passed over His people's sin and then helped, uh, sort of, give them gave them an escape route out of Egypt. Uh, from slavery in egypt and the passover remembered the time god gave them freedom that's what it pointed to but jesus changed what the passover was pointing to the passover wasn't what happened to the israelites you know 1500 bc the passover was all about what jesus would do the next day it was revolutionary but within only a few minutes, after Jesus had just said that this, this bread and this wine, it's, it's for you. It's going to be broken and, and, and shed for, for you. The disciples start arguing. Jesus had said, one of you will betray me. Around the table, he said, one of you will betray me. And then they started arguing. So page 907, look at your Bibles, verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Now, you can imagine how this sort of went after Jesus had said one would betray him. You can imagine them sort of saying, it's not going to be me. There's no way I'm going to betray Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm the most faithful. And others say, no, no, like, I'm way more loyal. Can't you remember when I did this? Da, da, da. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Jesus knew how it went in his world, and it's the same in our world. Kings and those in authority too frequently use their position to dominate the citizens that they rule for their own good. And, and they do it while playing a propaganda game. Um, they, they make out as if society continues because of them. So that's what Jesus means by they call themselves benefactors or another way of saying that is that they call themselves friends of the people. It's another way of saying benefactors. So these exceedingly rich rulers... They'd never pay a cent of tax, never. But they'd occasionally make payments towards the city's infrastructure, so bridges, aqueducts, town halls. And then when they did that, when they gave gifts to the the, the city, they made it widely known. They'd call themselves friends of the people. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. I'm not sure if you remember the Domino's game changer ad. It aired a few years ago. The CEO, uh, he said on the ad, he said, "That's him pictured there." You've demanded change, and we've pushed ourselves to respond. Then, at the end of the ad, get ready for the biggest announcement in 20 years. Hashtag game changer. What was Domino's game changer? It was new premium toppings and square bases. (laughs) One Facebook user commented in capitals, you had us on the edge of our seats for this. Verse 26 is an actual game changer. It's, it's the moment in a cricket match where the, the, the game is turned on its head. It's, the moment, it's, it's what the internet did to communication. It's what the wheel did to transportation. Verse 27. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now the two buts in this passage are really important. So the, the first one comes in verse 26, but it, it, it's responding to what Jesus says in verse 25. So verse 25 describes the way authority is so often used in our world. And then Jesus says, but you are not to be like that. The second but comes in verse 27. Uh, Jesus describes how we tend to view authority uh, and, and, and greatness. You know, the person at the table is greater usually. But then Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. With those words, our default views of greatness are shattered. We need to remember that in subtle ways, the Gospel of Luke has been portraying Jesus as more than just an ordinary Jewish teacher. In chapter 1, the angel said to Mary, The Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. And then just after that, Zechariah, the birth of Jesus, sings a song of praise to God. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people. God has come to his people. Jesus is God come into his world to live amongst his people. He's the son of God, who from all eternity has existed. He is greatness embodied, Jesus. And so when he says, But I am among you as one who serves, the God of all creation, the King of kings, is the servant. Any ideas of what we thought greatness was about are shattered and redefined. Greatness is not about being better than others. Greatness is all about serving. Hashtag game changer. Another way of saying that greatness is about service is to say that greatness is about humility. Humility, which is the willingness to use your power for the good of others, is the best word to describe Jesus. Jesus holds all power. He uses it to serve others. He uses his power to serve you and I. So if we want to uh, become great, it's not about going up. That's our default view. I want to become great. I want to be better. That's not right. It's about going down in humility. Verse 26, Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. Now, this is revolutionary stuff. And this really grates with the way we, we want it to be sometimes. This movement downwards isn't natural for us. And so we actually need to work at cultivating this humility. It's not natural for us. So how do we cultivate humility? I've got some suggestions. Firstly, and this will sound simplistic, we just need to act humbly. Um, we need to, on occasions, force ourselves to, to do things that are humble that we wouldn't otherwise do. It's like going to the gym to exercise your muscles. Um, sometimes we need to exercise the humility muscle. And we all know that the way we think changes the way we act, but it, it works the other way around too. If we, if we do something, it will eventually change the way we think. So, for instance, um, you could imagine someone in Year Twelve, you know, well established at school, got a really, you know, you got a got a friendship group and, and all that. You looking out for some Year Seveners who, who are new to the school, looking at how you could sort of welcome them to the school. They're they're probably not having a good time. How you might be able to serve them. That's one example for a high school student. Um, another example might be a. a A CEO, sort of a higher executive, making it her aim to personally greet five junior employees every day. Uh, Before long, she enjoys it, partly because of the reaction it receives, but eventually, she ends up doing it without thinking. So sometimes we just need to act humbly. What can you do? What's an action that you can just do to practice or to build that humility muscle? Two, we need to forget about being humble. This is the ironic thing about it humility. Um, The next step is thanks to C.S. Lewis. Uh, He's a a famous Christian writer. He observes that humility is a a low-key virtue. It's not like having brown hair that you can spot straight away. It often takes a while to spot humility in others because a truly humble person is not concerned at all about how they're coming across, about being humble. I'll read this quote from C.S. Lewis. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he'll be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. But when you meet this humble person, probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. And then C.S. source finishes off the discussion. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I think I would tell him that the first step, which is my second step, um, uh, would be to realise that you're proud. Nothing, whatever can be done before realising that. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. There you go. So forget about being humble. And thirdly, um, because as people, we're shaped most by what we love. That's just how we work as human beings. We're shaped by what we love. If we love humility when we see it, we will slowly become more humble. So this moves us on in the passage. So we're uh, approaching the the business end of of the Gospel of Luke. The, The pace in this Gospel is going to pick up really quickly. Before we know it, Jesus will have been accused, he'll have been tried, he'll have been nailed up to a Roman cross. And his words about greatness around the table with his disciples is just about the last thing he teaches his disciples. And I'm sure one reason why it's the last thing he teaches his disciples is that he wants them to know that when they're watching him go through everything he's about to go through, he wants them to realise that it's all in service of them. So we're going to skip a whole lot of verses that we're going to return to in two weeks i'm going to go to verse 39 now the gospel is a dramatic document it's a dramatic story and if we were sort of i'm trying to replicate the mood in this room uh sort of to reflect the mood at this point in the the passage we'd definitely turn off the lights we'd probably like put some scary owl sounds on (laughs) like this this is a deep moment this is this is an ominous moment in the Gospel of Luke. So, verse thirty-nine. Uh, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. It was night time, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, "Pray that you will not fall into temptation." Uh, this, what was going to come upon the disciples and Jesus was going to be tough. And so his instructions to them is to pray and then he practices what he preaches. Verse 41, Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw away from them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So we really need to get the heaviness of this moment. This moment is a time of of deep testing for Jesus. So far in the gospel, the, the evil... Uh, one that the Satan has been trying to get Jesus off course. He's been trying to get Jesus to, to not do the will of the Father. And the tension in this moment is, knowing what's ahead, will Jesus stay the course or not? Will he do the will of the Father, which he's always done? Will he do it? Uh, the will of the Father, what is it? Um, now, We read the Isaiah passage, which was all about a cup, and the cup is mentioned in this passage. The cup gives us a hint as to what the will of the Father is. The cup, and this is also why it's a really heavy moment in the Gospel, the cup is used in the Old Testament as a metaphor for God's anger against sin and his just response to it, his anger against sin. That's what the cup represents we need to realise how much God hates sin. And, and I think we all hate sin, if, if we're honest. Um, when we see expressions of sin in our own lives, and the lives of those around us, in the news, if we have compassion, we'll either shake our heads or, more likely, our blood will start boiling. Sin causes havoc in people's lives. It, dest- lives. it destroys people's lives. But for God, it's it's different sin for god is always personal sin is an attitude of the heart that says to god i'd rather live without you that's that's what sin ultimately is it's a sickness of the heart and the Bible's really clear that it's humanity that has this problem and we see it all the time but it's humanity who has this problem not jesus so why does Jesus drink the cup when it's us who have the problem? To understand this, we need to understand the principle of substitution, a theological term. But it's, it's, what, makes, it, it's what allows us to say, this principle, it allows us to say that Jesus died for us. The principle of substitution. Now I've got a quote here. It's by a guy called John Stott. He was a famous English Christian leader. I love this quote. It is beautifully simple. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Now that is just insane. This is the God we worship the God who teaches us to love our enemies, and he absolutely puts that into action. He takes the penalty we all deserve. That's why the gospel is good news. Because of substitution, Jesus died for us. So back to this moment of prayer, Jesus in the garden. This is deep, like I've said, this is, this is a moment of, of Jesus coming to terms in, in the deepest parts of himself, what it means to become a substitute. And we need to realize as well that the Father has loved the Son with the purest, most undiluted love. Our love pales in comparison to to God's love. And so when Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I can assure you, if there was any other way for, for God to save us that didn't involve this plan, God would have taken it with a snap of a, the fingers his love for his son was more pure than our love for anyone but that's how much god loves us verse 43 an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground the father didn't answer the prayer by taking the cup away but he did give jesus the strength To endure by means of an angel. And that's so often how God answers our prayer. Not always by taking the trial away. And not always via an angel. But by giving us the strength to endure. Verse 45. When Jesus rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Now, these instructions of Jesus uh, were directed to his disciples because this is a very particular moment in in the history of the world um, and they were about to face some really scary situations. But his words are applicable to us too. Pray that you don't fall into temptation. So whenever we're about to face or are facing a tempting situation, whenever we're put in a place where we know we're going to be tempted, not to please the Father? Whenever we're in a situation, if it's up to us, we're definitely going to fall. What should we do? We should pray. So what are those situations for you? We all have them. What are they for you? Uh, is it when you're with a particular group of friends and you know that you just too easily fall into sort of this, this um, ugly gossip with them? Or, or you drink too much with them? Is it when you're um, up late at night, you're sort of exhausted from a big, a big week and you start being tempted by websites or TV shows that you know you, sh- you sh- just are no good? Uh, is it when you're stressed out and you sort of burst out in anger to, to those you love? Is it-, is it when you're stressed that you're tempted to do something that won't please the Father? Maybe it's not anger, maybe it's its twin which is sort of stonewalling and it's not responding to people. When we're tempted to do something that that doesn't please the Father, we should pray. And it it can be a a quick one-liner. God, I'm really going to need your help here or now. So so pulling all the strings together, at, at the outset I asked, how do we become great? And Jesus gives us the answer. Greatness is about serving others. It's about humility. And then we, we saw greatness and, and humility in action. Uh, we, we saw it in Jesus serving us all the way uh, to, to drinking the cup that we deserve to drink. But the thing about humility, as I sort of said with C.S. Lewis's quote, um, we lose it if we do it for our own sake. If we try to be humble to be great, if we try to be humble to be really humble, look at me, I'm so humble, we've lost it straight away. Humility is exactly not thinking of yourself, but other people. It's serving others because they need it. Now, I I want your mind to start rolling over how you could do that in the specifics of your life. Serving others because they need it. Now, I'll I'll suggest some things, but, but they're going to be all unique to you, how you can put this into action. So and, uh, something you might do is, is ask the new guy at work who's left family to come and take this job. Ask him over for dinner because he's got no family. He doesn't know people. Serving others because they need it. it, it for me, what, one of the first things that comes to mind is um, uh, an elderly lady who lives on the bottom floor of our units. She doesn't have much family come over and she loves it when people say hi. I can just knock on her door and say hi. Serving others because they need it. It might be going out of your way to, to greet someone at uni or at school or at work who you know is, is having a hard time. Or it might be catching up with an old friend who hasn't come to church for years. Um, it might be catching up to, uh, with them because they need encouragement, serving others because they need it. The list is endless. It might be investing in relationships with those you know who, who don't know Jesus getting to know them, asking good questions, asking what they believe, having good conversations so that you might share Jesus with them because we all need Jesus more than anything. How can you serve others because they need it? Greatness is about serving others. All Jesus' disciples have to learn this from the first 12 who were reclining around the table, they had to learn it and so do we. Greatness is about serving others. And we learn it from the King of Kings who served us in the most costly way imaginable. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much that you came and lived among us even though you knew what it would cost. We thank you that you served us all the way to the cross, that you substituted yourself for us, that you drank the cup. Father, we pray that you might work in us humility like Jesus's. Please, by your spirit, shape us to be people who think of others first, who serve others, who are more concerned about others than ourselves. Father, we pray this in the name of your... Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.